This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of Left podcast with clips today from Archbishop Desmond Tutu, the Green News Report, the Majority Report, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, Counterspin, the David Pakman Show, the Young Turks, Shane Koizan, activism from the NRDC, and Climate Desk. The destruction of the Earth's environment is the human rights challenge of our time. Over the 25 years that climate change has been on the world's agenda, global emissions have risen unchecked while real-world impacts have taken hold in earnest. Time is running out. We are already experiencing loss of life and livelihood because of intensified storms, shortage of fresh water, spread of disease, rising food prices, and the creation of climate refugees. The most devastating effects are visited on the poor, those with no involvement in creating the problem, a deep injustice. Just as we argued in the 1980s that those who conducted business with apartheid South Africa were aiding and abetting an immoral system, today we say nobody should profit from the rising temperatures, seas and human suffering caused by the burning of fossil fuels. We can no longer continue feeding our addiction to fossil fuels as if there is no tomorrow. For there will be no tomorrow. We are on the cusp of a global transition to a new safe energy economy. We must support our leaders to make the correct moral choices. Freeze further exploration for new fossil sources. We cannot maintain a livable temperature and climate for humanity if we burn more than a fraction of the fossil fuels already discovered. Hold those responsible for climate damages accountable. Change the profit incentive by demanding legal liability for unsustainable environmental practices. Encourage governments to stop accepting funding from the fossil fuel industry that blocks action on climate change. Divest from fossil fuels and invest in a clean energy future. Move your money out of the problem and into solutions. There is a word we use in South Africa that describes human relationships. Ubuntu. It says, I am because you are. My success and my failures are bound up in yours. We are made for each other. Part of one family. The human family. With one shared earth. God bless you. One love. 
at the U.N. climate negotiations going on in Lima, Peru this week. The United Nations negotiators warned again that scientists say if we're going to have a chance of avoiding catastrophic global warming, then most of the world's fossil fuels have to stay in the ground unburned. That's not going to sit well on MSNBC. That means that those fossil fuel reserves are in danger of becoming worthless, what's known as stranded assets in the financial industry. United Nations Climate Chief Christiana Figueres also warned fossil fuels are really a high-risk investment. The exploitation of oil is getting more and more expensive, whereas the technologies and renewable energies are getting actually cheaper and cheaper. So we do have just from a financial and business perspective, a stronger case every day for renewables and a weaker case every time for fossils. The risk of stranded assets is a growing realization among global institutional investors, like those tree-hugger hippies at the Bank of England, who announced this week they are doing a top-to-bottom review of all of their fossil fuel investments in light of the shift around the world to renewable energy. It's already underway in Germany, way ahead of the rest of the world in transitioning to low carbon. In an industry-shaking announcement this week, Germany's biggest utility, E.ON, said it is spinning off its fossil fuel assets into a separate company to protect its growing and profitable renewable energy assets from that exposure to fossil fuels. In other words, they're realizing that fossil fuel is poison financially and in other ways, and it may be hurting the rest of their business. On the broadcast on Pacifica Radio this week, we asked Dr. Michael Mann, climate scientist and creator of the infamous hockey stick graph, what this announcement from Germany's E.ON actually portends. They've seen that the writing is on the wall. It isn't like this is a, you know, environmentally driven uh, uh, company. This mm-hmm. is a for-profit uh, energy company that recognizes that they will not be profitable uh, because of this new environment if they continue to invest in fossil fuel energy. That common sense in the rest of the world still seems nowhere to be found in the U.S., or at least in Florida, where the state government has decided to punish people for not polluting. Florida's State Public Service Commission, which is supposed to look out for ratepayers, just approved an industry wish list of measures to gut Florida's energy efficiency standards and terminate its rebates for rooftop solar. So the rest of the world is incentivizing clean energy. Florida is actually punishing taxpayers. Exactly. Brilliant, Sunshine State. Show me sunshine. Show me good time. Show me happy days. Show me better ways. now yeah man check it out u.s department of energy's controversial loan program which uh the where the loan programs office handed out loans or i should say probably guaranteed loans for innovative companies that were innovating on things like solar power and sustainable energy. <laughs> this was the uh, program that funded Solyndra. You know, Solyndra. Solyndra. 
Solyndra, for which we didn't have, well, we had hearings, but not multiple hearings. How could the government set up a program to guarantee loans for stuff that is just basically padding people's pockets so they can go away with it? Look, let me just say this. Let me preface this. If this loan program had not made a dime for the U.S. government, but had furthered industries which would help society, like the development of sustainable energy, like the development of energy-saving, I don't know, light bulbs, or cars, or home heating programs. That would be enough to justify its existence in my mind. But I know that there are people out there who are deluded and believe that government shouldn't pick winners and losers and that it's possible for a government not to pick winners and losers. That government doesn't pick winners and losers no matter what on a daily basis. It's just a question of how much we as a society tell our government to pick winners that are in our best interests, all of our best interests. I know there are people out there who are deluded about that. And then would just simply say like, well, then, you know, if the government's, if it's costing money, man, according to the Milton Friedman video or I watched or the Ayn Rand, you know, uh, digest I read. So the U.S. Department's energy uh, program, which involved uh, the now defunct Solyndra, but also Tesla Motors, has not only wiped out its losses, the federal agency now expects to earn more than $5 billion, according to the program. Not a huge sum of money. I mean, it would be for, I mean, for you chumps, not for me, but. Projects funded by the Loan Programs Office made $810 million in interest payments in September, according to the report released last Wednesday. That's higher than the $780 million in losses from loans it sustained when startups, including electric car maker Fisker Automotive, panel manufacturer Abound Solar and Solyndra, went bankrupt after taking large government loans. Taxpayers are not only benefiting from some of the world's most innovative energy products, but these projects are making good on their loan repayments, said Peter Davidson, executive director of the Loan Programs Office, told Reuters. Every month, money continues to roll in. Still, I, I am, I'm almost sad that this uh, government program is making money because I don't want that to be the justification for it. It's not. It's because there are some industries which are so risky or some industries or some innovations which no industry can yet to figure out how to monetize that it needs government support and development, like, let's say, like, I don't know, the Internet, just for starters. Or like, I don't know, Ebola viruses, uh, vaccinations. Eh. The program office has the authority from Congress to issue nearly $60 billion in total loans and loan guarantees. Program so far has issued more than half that chunk of which nearly $22 billion has been dispersed to 20 projects. The reason why the full amount of money hasn't been loaned, I'm convinced, is because of you idiots who thought that uh, Solyndra was something to hang your hat on. So good for you. You've been able to hold back 
uh, all sorts of, of wonderful potential innovations. So don't talk me through it. I understand it. But everything is done. Don't hold me back. I'm always waiting. But you don't know it. But everything is done. Don't hold me back. Don't hold me back. The climate is changing. In fact, it's been changing for millions of years. But what's different now is the climate is changing at an unprecedented rate. We're seeing it in rising temperatures, in the increased intensity of storms, floods, and droughts. And the frequency of this severe weather is increasing. Also, sea levels are rising more rapidly. How do these events affect the things we care about in our daily lives? Many of the things that we depend on, like food, water, and energy, are sensitive to changes in climate. Climate change makes it more difficult to ensure adequate water supplies for drinking water, growing crops, and hydropower. It destroys our rivers and beaches and changes the landscape of our country from Florida and the Gulf Coast to Glacier National Park and Alaska. It affects our ability to raise cattle and catch fish, and it increases the risk we face of infectious disease and heat-related deaths. Any one of these consequences of climate change would pose a significant challenge to our nation. But these things are all happening across America at the same time. Hurricane Sandy illustrated that we are inadequately prepared to protect ourselves against extreme weather. Flooding damaged thousands of homes and businesses in New Jersey, Connecticut, and New York, even Wall Street. While parts of the area are back to normal, not every community was resilient enough to recover quickly from this disaster. Some still haven't. And these localized storms can have national impacts. Hurricane Katrina didn't just devastate New Orleans, it affected the availability of oil and natural gas to people all across the country. The dramatic shifts in our weather patterns are now causing severe drought and flooding, posing major challenges to farmers. In Iowa, Farmers are struggling to grow our crops as they are hit by repeated floods and droughts. If this keeps up, we could see a scarcity in our food supplies and higher prices at the grocery store. As our temperatures and weather patterns shift, farmers may no longer be able to keep growing the same types of crops. Climate change is also threatening our water supplies in states like California, Arizona, and Nevada. Lake Mead, a key source of water for those states, is already at historically low levels. They may soon have to ration water for drinking, agriculture, and energy production. Extreme dry spells are also triggering more wildfires that are burning out of control and destroying homes. And it's not just happening here in the United States. It's happening all around the world. There's no time to wait. The consequences of delaying action will only become more severe and more difficult to overcome. We have an opportunity to slow the rate of climate change and make it more manageable by cutting greenhouse gas emissions that contribute to global warming. In the same way that all of our individual actions cause the climate to change so rapidly, we can all be part of the solution. Working together, we can make a difference as we continue to reduce greenhouse gases and anticipate, prepare, and adapt to a changing climate.
Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. Last week, we talked about how coverage of the Keystone XL pipeline was falling short, misleading viewers about thousands of jobs created and so-called energy independence. Unfortunately, things aren't getting much better. On the November 23rd episode of Meet the Press, Chuck Todd wanted to use Keystone to talk more broadly about energy policy. His starting point was to belittle the issue. He told viewers that this is largely a symbolic fight because, quote, Canadian tar sands oil is already getting to refineries in the U.S. by barge and train, close quote. Huh, so a massive corporation is investing billions of dollars to build a symbol? That would be odd. In reality, Keystone is designed to transport much more oil to U.S. refineries than can be shipped via rail. That is one reason people oppose Keystone. It represents, in very real terms, a decision to burn millions of tons of carbon when we should be doing the very opposite. But if your starting point is that Keystone doesn't really matter, the discussion that flows from that is probably going to be pretty narrow. And sure enough, it was. Todd's guests were energy analyst Daniel Jurgen. he advises oil companies, and the former CEO of Shell. Unsurprisingly, they largely agreed. Last week, Meet the Press had two pro-Keystone pundits. This week, not much better. Since the midterm elections of a couple of weeks ago, the topic of the Keystone XL pipeline has become more and more of a topic of discussion amongst both Republicans and Democrats. We've done interviews in the past, and we recently updated you on the jobs numbers, and we made clear that all of the data suggests that the Keystone XL pipeline would create only 50 permanent jobs. Now, Fox News said, and we talked about it earlier this week, that it would create tens of thousands of jobs, and we looked into it, and that's just not true. The Keystone XL Pipeline's construction would support, during the time of construction, maybe tens of thousands of jobs, but a job supported is not a job created. It now turns out that even that number appears to be false. Only 3,900 workers will actually be required to build the pipeline to carry oil from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico, according to the United States State Department. And those jobs will last only a year. 
So we started running the numbers, and a bunch of people have done this. TransCanada, which is the company that wants to build this pipeline, claims the effort will create 13,000 construction jobs. Even TransCanada, though, only predicts that it will take about 7 million hours of labor. So if you have 3,400 workers and you divide that over a year, uh, that would mean that uh, it would be full-time work for those 34 to 3,900 people. If you have 13,000 workers doing these 7 million hours of labor, it means that they're working very part-time or only three months out of the year. That's not even really supporting that many jobs, Lewis. Nope, not at all. Uh, the, the numbers on this one are just, uh, are just ridiculous. Uh, clearly, the only reason that this is so popular is because it has the backing of, of big oil and big energy. And uh, the misinformation is just rampant. Uh, I, I, I think, unfortunately, that this will probably end up on the president's desk. I hope he shuts it down. And every time we talk about this, I get emails from people who say, David, you're ignoring the fact, they use the word fact, that the Keystone XL pipeline will lower oil and gas prices for us. This is a good thing. More and more reports say that that's not even true. CNN Money has reported, quote, gas prices might go up, not down. Right now, a lot of oil being produced in Canada and North Dakota has trouble reaching the refineries and terminals on the Gulf. Since that supp supply can't be sold abroad, it reduces the competition for it to Midwest refineries that can pay lower prices to get it. Giving away Canadian oil access to the Gulf means the glut in the Midwest goes away, actually making it more expensive for the region. Bloomberg saying completion of the Keystone pipeline would raise prices at the pump in the Midwest and Rocky Mountains, 10 to 20 cents a gallon. Um, we need to stop this, Lewis, because even the reasons for doing this, economic stimulus and jobs, 50 jobs created, 3,900 jobs supported during a year. It'll lower prices for gas and oil. No, it appears that regionally it will actually raise them. We really need to proactively do everything we can to ensure this doesn't happen. My youth conceal the truth by now, forget I'm waiting to forgive you, but it hasn't happened yet Oh, your mouth betrays your conscience, it's too comfortable to care But even as the sun comes up, it's going down somewhere So look me in the eye and tell me why you're bleeding Love is just a word to you and them Just feel it, you said what you deserve Don't God and let me well, it's crunch time in the final days of the current round of United Nations climate treaty negotiations now underway in Lima, Peru. Delegates are crafting the major components of an international emissions treaty to be signed in Paris a year from now. In a fiery address on Thursday in Lima, U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry... A fiery address from John Kerry? <laughs> yeah, I know. He highlighted the cost of extreme weather disasters and says the solution is obvious. The solution to climate change is energy policy. What's the worst thing that can happen to us for making these choices? Create a whole bunch of new jobs, kick our economies into gear, have a world that's more secure because we have energy that isn't dependent on one part of the world or another. And now at the talks, a remarkable development. For the first time ever at these talks, there are now open calls for ending fossil fuel use entirely as early as 2050, starting with a price on carbon in every country, according to World Bank President Jim Yong Kim. All countries should commit to put a price on carbon. 
It's a necessary, if not sufficient, step in any journey to zero net emissions. Calls are growing for the treaty to include a global price on carbon pollution and an end to all fossil fuel subsidies. So when we say a price on carbon, we're talking about a carbon tax, essentially. We're talking about charging big companies for the amount of carbon they put into the atmosphere, correct? Yes, that's the overall idea. And carbon taxes are a proven economic boost. Just look at British Columbia, where its carbon tax has been wildly successful for the economy while cutting emissions. That's being touted as a model for all countries. It was also successful for the short time they tried it in Australia. Yes, it was. Up until the right-wing Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, came in and did away with the carbon tax. And that's another big development at the talks. After being ridiculed by world leaders at the G20 talks last month, Tony Abbott, who's a climate change denier, reversed himself. Australia will now contribute to the UN's Green Climate Fund to help poor countries deal with global warming impacts. Well, look, uh, you know, I've made various comments uh, uh, some time ago, but as we've seen things develop uh, over the last uh, few months, uh, uh, I think it's now fair and reasonable for the government to make a modest, uh, prudent and proportionate commitment uh, to this uh, uh, climate mitigation fund. I think that's... uh, something that a sensible government does. I love how reticent he is. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently-owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com to shop at just one of the major companies with the insatiable profit incentive to help perpetuate the destructive paradigm of overconsumption and exploitative capital. Better yet, go ahead and click through to the Amazon site that serves your country just once and then bookmark it to use every time you shop, which should be as rarely as possible. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumerism altogether or at least consuming in a subversive way. Now, you know that uh, climate change used to be called global warming. Now, that's actually kind of a bit of a misnomer because all the way back in the 1980s, it was called both things, climate change and global warming. But to be fair, now conservatives say, oh, it got changed. Here's what they mean by that, and there's some truth to it, which is that the words global warming used to be emphasized. Now the words climate change are emphasized more. And part of the reason that they did that was for accuracy because, in effect, Yes, the world is warming. Now, of course, Republicans say, oh, they changed the word, so that means, haha, they were caught, the world is not warming. Except that's not true, it is warming. We've shown this charts over and over again. The last 10, 12 years have been uh, literally some of the warmest years on record. So there, it, global warming is real. Okay, but the other reason, but the main reason they changed it is because that's not the only thing that's happening. The climate is also changing in other ways. The storms are more severe, and ironically, the cold is sometimes even colder. I, I, 
I'm a scientist, don't make me explain it. <laughs> okay, but unlike the Republicans, I trust 97% of the world's scientists who explain that yes, in fact, it is warming and it is also affecting other things in our climate. Now, honestly, the second part of the reason they changed it was because they thought that the Republicans had made global warming a dirty phrase and that if you change the climate change, people would be more inclined to go in that direction. So did it work? Well, a new poll out um, by Gallup scholar Riley uh, Dunlap uh, gives us some indication. 34% worry a great deal about global warming uh, and 35% worry about climate change. Well, those numbers are pretty similar. <laughs> okay, that appears to be within the uh, margin of error of the poll. Uh, so, seems like it's not much of a change. We'll talk about why in a second. But actually, if you break it down by different groups, there is a little bit of a difference. When you look at Democrats, it's identical. 83% are worried about it, whether it's called global warming or climate change. When you look at Republicans, 36% are worried about global warming, but 39% worried about climate change, a little bigger, right? But independence, I, that's somewhat significant. 49% say they're concerned about global warming, but a slightly higher number, 56% worried about climate change. So it still has some effect. Now, uh, the reason it doesn't have any effect for Democrats is because they're just as concerned either way, right? And for Republicans, largely as unconcerned as they were before. <laughs> now, that wasn't the case. So let me have uh, quote Mother Jones here next uh, in an explanation. That's not to say there wasn't a time, perhaps as recently as mid-2009, they say, when the data were collected by Michigan study cited above, when conservatives were indeed more open to talking, taking the problem seriously, if it was labeled climate change rather than global warming. Now, why is that? Because they had made global warming a dirty word. Ah, oh, global warming, but yet there was a snowstorm the other day. Ha <laughs> ha, Al Gore. So when they went to climate change, Republicans were like, yeah, well, actually, I do see the climate change. I'm a little worried about it. And then what do they do? The Republicans then attack the words climate change. So let me quote Mother Jones again. But if so, those days are long gone. Dunlap suggests that this is because conservatives have gotten just as used to dismissing climate change as they are to dismissing global warming. Certainly the name bestowed upon their favorite pseudo-scandal, late 2009's Climate Gate, didn't help matters. And of course that's not an accident. That's why they called it Climate Gate. They found some emails of some professors that were perfectly innocuous that didn't talk about fixing numbers or anything, but they said that they did anyway. And they screamed, Climate Gate! Oh my God! They talked about fixing numbers. But you read the emails and that's not what they said. But it doesn't matter. They don't care about the truth. All they want to do is confuse you and have you go, I don't know, man. I don't know if there's change or there's not change. I'll throw up my hands and do nothing. For them, that's mission accomplished. They don't have to get you to believe the opposite. All they have to do is get you so confused that you don't take any action. And we keep drilling for oil and the old fossil fuel companies that fuel the Republican Party and the right wing in this country win. So in the case of global warming, people were concerned until the Republicans you know, demonize it. Now they're doing likewise the climate change. They haven't completely won on that, but it's trending in the wrong direction. And this is how propaganda not only hurts our society, might ultimately kind of destroy the planet. Spin me round again and rub my eyes. This can't be happening when busy streets are made.
stop to hold their hands heavy. Like many, I love to look at the stars. I love the fact that ours is just one among many. What I love about astronomy is that our constellations tell a story. Our constellations were born from mythology. Mythology was our first attempt to understand the world in which we live. We put a god in everything, and those gods would give us our reasons. Why is the sky blue? Who chose blue? The gods. How come men have nipples? It's the will of the gods. Why does this wine taste so good? There's a god in it. And for a while, there was not a single thing that the gods could not explain. We believed that their anger gave us lightning, their despair gave us rain. We whispered our desires to them, believing that their charity would sustain us. But those gods were just stories. But stories became a large part of how we learn. They burn lessons into our memories. They become a part of how we remember, and we can remember almost everything. Right down to that first unbearable beasting, when we learn that this tiny blue marble we call the world has rules. Rule number one: don't fuck with the bees. An unforgettable lesson brought to you by your memories. I remember that I grew up loving mythology. I remember the story of the Titan Atlas, who was also the god of astronomy. The original global positioning system, sending sailors safely home by telling them which constellations to keep starboard. He taught us about the stars. He did all this while he held up ours. Our pale blue dot, but Atlas is caught between two different tellings of his story. In the first, he leads a rebellion against Olympus and is then sentenced to hold the heavens on his shoulders for eternity. In the second story, he is chosen to be the guardian of the pillars that hold up the earth and sky. I prefer the second story. It means that the world is not a punishment, but rather a responsibility. But how can just one be charged with such a burden? How can just one be responsible for all this? When I think of Atlas, I think of a single drop of rain. I think how unfair it would be to hold a single drop solely responsible for making the entire world clean again. I remember how my grandmother tried to explain our world to me. She told me a story. She said the ground and the sky, they love each other, but they don't have arms or、so、rain. That's just how they hold one another. I began to see how the earth and sky need each other, but I wondered about us in this perfect design. Where do we fit? Which piece of the puzzle are we? Like constellations, I began to see a connection between dots. I numbered my thoughts and drew lines from one to the next. I began to see us in the context of a bigger picture, sharpening the blur slowly into focus. We are Atlas. I saw that this pale blue dot, this one world, is all we get. There will be no reset button, no new operating system or downloadable upgrade. We will not be allowed to trade in our old world for a new one with climate control or better fuel efficiency. We get one shot at this. Dismiss all reports of second chances. We get one, and yet we draw advances on our future as if we won't one day be held accountable. We will. We are. The human race runs toward a finish line, emblazoned with the words "too far" and wonders, "Will we ever cross it? Have we already? 
we are faced with a seemingly impossible task. And it's okay to be afraid. Our dilemma stands before us like a mountain carved into a blockade. The sheer magnitude of our problem would be enough to dissuade anyone. How do we save the world? We lay in our beds curled into question marks wondering what can we do? Where do we start? Is hope a glue crazy enough to hold us together while we're falling apart? The burden seems immense, but we can do this. We must take the martial arts approach to loving our planet, love as self-defense. Forget about the cost. There will be no other thing as worth saving as this. Nothing more important, nothing as precious. This is home. All of our stories start and end here. We are sheltered within an atmosphere that has given us every breath we will ever take. Every monument we will ever make has come from the flesh of our planet. Water like blood, skin like soil, bone like granite. It is not a myth. There is no debate. Facts are in factors. There's never been any question. We are facing crisis. We dismiss the truth not because we can't accept it, but because having to commit ourselves to change is a scary prospect for anybody. The most alarming part of the statement we are facing crisis isn't the word crisis. It's the word we. Because those two letters take responsibility away from one and rest it squarely on the shoulders of everybody. We are Atlas now. But our strength will come from finding a way to share and shouldering the responsibility of turning the impossible into somehow. Somehow we will do this. We can do this. We can dismiss apathy. We can reject uncertainty. We can be the new chapter in our story. We will not see change immediately. We must act in faith. As the hour hand grips the minute hand and they land on the 11th hour, we must believe like the seed that change is possible. The seed never sees the flower. It grows knowing that it must become more than what it was. It changes because in growth all of its potential can be unlocked. Change is like rain. It starts with a single drop. Just one. Like our pale blue dot. Caught in an endless waltz called gravity, we circle the sun wondering who, if anyone, left the light on. We are constellations drawn upon the earth. We are connected to one another. We are bound. We must behave as the arms that connect the ground to the sky. We must try to be more like the rain. Our stories may differ. Our goal is the same. How do we save our pale blue dot? We act as the rain, realizing that each individual drop is as equal and important as any. We act as one. Now we are many. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, get local on climate change. 
in a move that will shock no one listening to this podcast, the federal government is in the process of proving that gridlock and living on a razor's edge remain the preferred state of affairs in Washington as they grapple over whether to shut down the entire government again because they're insane. The Green News report sums it up nicely. As we go to air, Congress is trying to make a last-minute deal to keep the government open. Don't know if they'll be successful or not. They've got this massive bill called the Cromnibus. What have the Republicans snuck into it that is going to ruin the EPA, ruin the environment, and everything else? Oh, my goodness. A whole host of things, like you said, big cuts to the EPA's budget and to science research, repealing endangered species protections that interfere with oil and gas drilling, huge increases in subsidies for fossil fuels and nuclear power, and there's lots more. It's pretty much a preview of what the next two years are going to be like when Republicans take over both houses of Congress. The sad fact is that the federal government now more than ever is completely fucking useless. So just like in the case of working for campaign finance reform, the action has shifted to the states. You have a governor and state elected officials who actually have to do things like pass budgets and enforce federal regulations from agencies like the EPA. The National Resources Defense Council has an easy fill-in-the-boxes way to let your governor know that you'd like them to get on board with the new limits to carbon pollution from coal-fired power plants. Local officials have power, typically more power to actually do real things that affect real people than federal officials. So visit nrdc.org and go to their Act Now tab to click through and support the campaign. This will take you less than 60 seconds. Governors are typically more busy balancing budgets than contributing sound bites to Sunday morning shows, so we can forget that they are executive office holders who draft and approve budgets for everything from road repair to education to energy. Give your governor their due and tell them clean air matters to the people of your state. The segment notes include all the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If breathable air matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the NRDC campaign via social media so that others in your network can contact their governors about limiting carbon pollution too. We can't do it alone as one nation. The problem's in China, the problem's in Mexico, the problem's in India. If we got India, China, and other industrialized countries uh, not working with us, all we're going to do is ship millions of American jobs overseas. China made the comment that they will not be engaging in a cap-and-trade system. There are other countries that are uh, polluting in the atmosphere much greater than we are at this point. China and India, they're not going to stop doing what they're doing. They won't be engaging in reducing their own emissions. This motion, what it does, it would prevent Congress from passing any law with new mandates on greenhouse gas emissions unless both China and India had the same mandate. America's a country, it's not a planet. If countries like China and India and Russia are in part 
of a carbon reduction global program that it does not matter what we do. And it makes no sense if we don't require the major other, the industrial countries like China and India to do the same thing. After months of secret negotiations, President Obama and Chinese President Xi Jinping this week have agreed to reduce their country's emissions of dangerous greenhouse gases that cause global warming. I commend President Xi, his team, and the Chinese government for the commitment they are making to slow, peak, and then reverse the course of China's carbon emissions. Today I can also announce that the United States has set a new goal of reducing our net greenhouse gas emissions by 26 to 28 percent below 2005 levels by the year 2025. That's twice the rate that the U.S. had committed to reducing emissions before. Now, China will peak their emissions by 2030 or sooner. They also committed to a goal of producing 20 percent of China's electricity from renewable sources by 2030. So we are going to further lower our emissions. And China, just to preempt the Republicans who are now saying that China doesn't have to do anything for 16 years, here's Josh Fox, the director of Gasland, explaining how much China is going to have to do in the next 16 years. In, in 16 years, they're going to build an entire United States worth of, of non-carbon, non-fossil fuel power, which means, right, that we can do the same thing. So this is a huge commitment from China, even though Republicans are already saying, oh, China doesn't have to do anything for 16 years. And White House science advisor, actual scientist John Holdren, explained why this is a big deal. China has never officially committed to peak at any particular date. Uh, but the idea of a joint announcement was to show the world that the two biggest emitters of greenhouse gases are now ready to lead in ambitious strategies to reduce those emissions. But make no mistake, this deal is not enough, scientists to keep the world from overshooting the internationally agreed-upon limit of warming the planet no more than 2 degrees Celsius, that's 3.5 degrees Fahrenheit, by 2100 relative to pre-industrial levels. Much more remains to be done, according to Jamie Henn of 350.org. Now, the key test is whether or not the administration will also do what's necessary to keep fossil fuels on the ground and stop new dirty energy development. That would seem to be a veiled reference to the Keystone XL pipeline there. Now, China's new commitment eliminates Republicans' biggest excuse for blocking U.S. action on global warming. The one they've been repeating over and over again for years. China, India, all these countries that are still growing, they're not going to stop doing what they're doing. Climate policy that does not include massive energy consumers like China and India is essentially meaningless. We can't do it alone as one nation. It's only us doing it. Nobody else is doing this. I don't think we can control the emissions from China and India, nor do they have any desire to control So the GOP was wrong, 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 and apparently wrong in regard to China. And they still want to be wrong because after the deal was announced, Republicans and their friends at Fox News found other reasons to complain. Is the agreement just a sign that China has a hold on us? They're the big polluters. They're the big polluters, absolutely. They are the, uh, you know, uh, producers of products to the world. And they will not turn off those factories. So basically the GOP response at this point is completely incoherent. They were completely wrong. Well, let's hope that they continue to be wrong as the world comes together to negotiate an international climate treaty in Paris in 2015. The agreement between the U.S. and China is certainly giving new hope to those negotiations for next year.
My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my comments. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. What's amazing is yesterday we reported on... President Obama and the outrage that fortunately um, what's his name Matt Drudge had caught President Obama wearing a traditional Chinese tunic or as it's called a Han Fu no not a Han Fu <laughs> there's another name for it I don't have it in front of my in front of me now and um, saying that his inner tyrant had come out. Well, apparently it had, because uh, last night, late last night, U.S. time, President Obama and Chinese President Xi Jinping announced a major agreement to curtail greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, this is an agreement that they hoped to um, to bring to... Paris in 2015 in December where there is a um, uh, UN climate talks. The deal is essentially U.S. pledges, it's part of the bargain, to reduce emissions 26 to 28 percent below 2005 levels by 2025, which is an acceleration of the current stated goal, the Obama administration, to reduce emissions 17 percent by 2020. It is unclear as whether or not we will be able to make it there, but it's important to have this goal, I guess. China, for the first time ever, has set a goal of emissions ceasing their rate of growth by 2030, possibly earlier. China will also aim to get 20% of its energy from non-fossil sources by 2030. China, of course, not reducing as quickly as U.S. because it is uh, considered a poorer nation. It will require China to deploy an additional 800 to 1,000 gigawatts of nuclear, wind, solar, and other zero-emission generation capacity by 2030, which is equivalent to more than all the coal-fired power plants that exist in China today and nearly the total current electricity generation capacity in the United States today. The other parts of the deal, two countries will also continue to cooperate on clean energy R&D. They'll launch a pilot project in China for capturing coal plant emissions and sequestering the carbon underground. This is uh, huge because, one, we have heard all of the right-wingers and the naysayers saying, we should not go first. Where's China? If we cut emissions unilaterally, China will not be encouraged to do so. 
Well, that has gone by the wayside. I'm sure what you'll hear next is we can't trust the Chinese. What if we go ahead and cut our carbon emissions, create tons of new jobs via pursuing green energy? What if we become completely independent of foreign fossil fuel and of carbon-based fuel in this country and all we're generating is clean energy by 2030 and then China hasn't. Where will we be then? I guess that's the argument, right? We don't want to get too far out ahead of China into the future <laughs> because then China will own the past will all retrospectively, retroactively have to wear those traditional Chinese tunics. My name is Damon, and I'm from uh, Bath, North Carolina. Uh, I just wanted to comment on the Mike Brown, uh, Mike Brown shooting, and I think it uh, it links to the torture policy or the torture that went on during uh, the Bush era. Why the right wing is supporting torturing people? They're supporting torturing brown people. It's the same way that they are supporting police that are killing unarmed black men. It's clear from that that they don't see black and brown people as human or as deserving the same rights as them. I want to make that correlation. Another thing I wanted to talk about is that NRA and how they've been silent about so many things that they should be speaking out against if they're for, for gun rights. Like the stop and frisk policy was built on a Supreme Court ruling that relaxes on stopping first rules for search and seizure when an officer believes a suspect may have a gun before the ruling law enforcement could not stop and search random citizens without a clear and articulate reason. Uh, the NRA should be fighting against stop and frisk when, when it is a big national issue, but they never said a word about it. I just wanted to point that out, and my name is Damon Spencer, and I'm from North Carolina. Thanks. Hi, uh, my name is Gia, and I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm calling in regards to the Marcus versus all black liberals uh, argument that seems to be occurring. And I just want to say that I'm defending Marcus a wee bit. I find it problematic as a black woman that we can't have a discussion of both of the issues, of the issues of black empowerment and enfranchisement and building our communities from within, as well as the conversation about what's happening with things on the outside and structurally and institutionally. I think that this is a false dichotomy. We need to be working on both edges of the problem. That's how movement and change will happen the fastest for our community and for the nation. Those are the changes that have occurred and worked for our community in in historical representations in the 50s 
and even before that, and they will continue to do so. So you have this sort of push-pull happening from both inside and outside that's going to get us closer. Um, that's just my two cents, and thanks so much for listening and all of the work that you do. Keep on doing it. It's greatly appreciated. Thanks. Bye. Jay, it's Wade again. Look, I know I've been calling in a lot. I'm sorry to blow up your voicemail, but God damn, I'm fired up. I have to respond to, to the caller from Wichita Falls. Hi, this is Marcus McKenzie. I'm from Wichita Falls, Texas. And I have to say that telling uh, black people to, to not be, you know, look or act like thugs, that's not going to save them. In fact, they can look exactly like white people, and, and these incidents would still happen far too frequently. Because the, the problem is, is that if you think you're anybody in this country, okay, if you think you have the right to not be forced down on the hot, oil-riddled, gum-infested, nasty-ass street and have an officer come and place his knee on your neck because you might pose a threat to him, if you think you have the right to, to, to not have to go through that particular humiliation, you, you pose a threat to the police. And, and they will they will teach you a lesson. You see... Eric Garner didn't look like a thug, and he didn't talk like a thug. He was wearing shorts and a T-shirt. I've got the same outfit at the house. And he was doing nothing more than protesting his innocence, which you're kind of allowed to do. And the police viewed that as a threat. He, he was he was a threat to them, resisting. He wasn't resisting. He was explaining himself. Far cry. So the real problem is the police don't like it when you stand up for your rights. They don't like you to have dignity around them. If you're not sheep, then they're going to have to hit you so hard that you never get up again. So the, the police aren't black, white, brown, or yellow. They're blue. And make no mistake about it, it's us versus them. They cannot stand anybody that questions their authority. But that's what this country is about, questioning authority. We're not civilians. We're citizens. For the love of God, don't lose the moment. Don't lose the momentum by making it just about race. It's not. It's about police brutality. It should unite every one of us. And, and blacks could be wearing business suits every day. But God damn it, if they make contact with the police, they don't immediately bow down. They will be treated as just as much a threat as the young Jane Binger from... Chicago, whatever they, you know, whatever. I'm just throwing that out there. That's what will happen to them. So, be united. Don't lose the momentum. Say it loudly. Say it proudly. Fuck the police because I can't breathe. Hey, Jay, this is Marcus. Um, I'm calling back because I wanted to clear up some of the stuff I said because I, I, I heard the voicemails and I heard what I said. I was like, oh, wait, I can come off as that pull your pants up and people will treat you better argument. But I want to come in here with a different point of view in that. My point of view is that why is it that people just think that that pull your pants up argument, people will treat you better, is a valid argument to put in situations like this? Why is that? Because from my point of view, I've been around enough black people that said that there is a lot of people that are out there that are outstanding citizens, you know. Why is it that all of a sudden the actions of one person that people see on YouTube or people see on TV all of a sudden has to validate every black person in the world or has to put them underneath that 
that stereotypes, all those stereotypes, oh, they, they film that that's the stereotype of what a black person is going to be. For example, like this. When I was growing up in high school, people would say this one term to me. Man, you don't act black, you act white. And I was so offended by that and so hurt by that on so many levels because that was worse than saying the N-word to me because that's basically telling me that I'm an individual who's smart. I don't scare people. They figured out who I really was and they realized, hey, this man's not that scary. He's just like one of us. And when they say that, they want to say, oh, you act white. So then what does it mean to act black? Huh? How come my accomplishments, what I've done to change your mind, how come that can't be your new view of what black people are? Why does it have to continue to be the same old image that you see on TV, the hip-hop, the thugs, and all that shooty-shooty, chitty-chitty-bang-bang stuff that everybody wants to see on TV all the time, you know? And how come every time, just like you said you had an episode a while back, it, I can't remember what it was, but it, it went to something like this where when, you, when they see a black man on TV, they think that he's angry, he's mad, he's an angry black man, and that's the way all other black men are going to be. And I was like, no, that's not. That's an individual who was upset in that particular moment. He's not a bad person. He's upset. Just like the, these protesters on TV, they're not bad people. They are upset. They're frustrated. They're, they have the same frustrations that go through my, my brain every single day. And we get sick and tired of it. I'm sick and tired of, of people want to put us in this pretty little box of stereotypes. If you, if you meet that, check that off. Check that off. Okay, now you're black. But if you don't, hey, man, you're, you're a cool person. You act like a white, girl, white guy. Why is white is right, but black is evil? Who put that stereotype out there? Because from what I'm seeing here, I see where they're getting it from, but it makes no sense because we don't do that to them. We don't say, hey, you're evil. We, we see a lot of white people doing school shootings. All white people are evil. We don't do that. If you're white, oh, you, you, you do this. If you're white, you're a serial killer. If you're white, you do that. A lot of white people do stuff that, that, are, that are bad, too. I mean, it, it's just you can't put black underneath the pretty bow. And, and when, once people start realizing that they, 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 they need to stop doing that, I think this will solve a lot of these racial tensions that we have in this world. I'm an individual. And what I do that is good, I do it because I'm black. I'm doing it as a black man, not as a black man acting white. All I want to say, you have a good day, Jay. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. couple of things today. First of all, I want to tell you something that I've been meaning to say for months, and I'm embarrassed to admit that I've just forgotten. Uh, and this is for anyone who has even a passing interest in the Young Turks. They have been a staple of Best of Left since its inception. Uh, I've been a fan of theirs for more than a decade. And so if you are interested in them at all, you should know that a documentary has been made about them. And I'm remembering to tell you about it now because I just saw it last night at the DC premiere. Uh, I, I was not disappointed. It was an excellent film. It talks about the sort of origin stories of the Young Turks, uh, really interesting turmoil that's happened uh, to them in the last several years, talks about where they are now, where they're headed, all of those sorts of things. And so, you know, for sort of a behind the scenes insider's view of the Young Turks, that, you know, it, it's a great insight there. But even for people not necessarily interested in them, uh, it's definitely targeted a broader audience just as a story of 
perseverance and following your dreams and fighting through obstacles and all, all sorts of those sorts of things that are more universal themes. So the name of the film is Mad as Hell. You can get details on how to watch it at madashellfilm.com. It may be premiering at a theater in your town. If it is not, you can find out there, but you can actually request that it come to your town. And if you get enough people together who want to see it, then you'll get to see it in the theater in your town. Uh, and then beyond that, it'll be available as a wider release in the coming months. But like I said, all the details are at madashellfilm.com. You can go there and figure out the best way for you to watch it. Secondly, I'm really glad we heard back from Marcus. Uh, that, that message we just heard from him definitely clarifies some things uh, from his previous message. And I'm not even sure if he knows that this is what he's saying, but to clarify for everyone else, my understanding is that he is describing the system of white supremacy. He, he's asking what seems like a very simple question, trying to figure out, you know, how is it that people get these crazy ideas that all black people are the same, but all white people are individuals? Well, that's basically what white supremacy is. And, you know, so you'll probably, you know, if you're paying attention to the concept of racism at all, you've probably heard of the idea that people of color experience what's referred to as microaggressions on a regular basis. Well, the flip side of that is that everyone, white, black, or anything else, if you live in America or most other places in the world, you experience micro-influences. And it's those influences that cast people of color in a negative light. Uh, that is an almost universal truth. So, uh, you know, I, I heard someone say recently that if you attended high school in the U.S. and you're not a racist after going through that system, then you must not have been paying attention to what you were being taught. <laughs> just, just to give you a sense of like how embedded racism is, that everything from what we watch on television, what we see in the media, what we experience, uh, in, you know, either what we learn in school, what we experience from our elders, everything, like we're just saturated in the, this concept of white supremacy from the day we're born. So the, the way I like to refer to it, and I, I don't think I made this up, but I can't remember where I heard it, is that white supremacy is like the ocean we all swim in. And, and patriarchy is the same way, actually. But just to stay focused, you know, the, the reason why all black people are grouped together and it's assumed that, you know, if one black person acts in a certain way, then they must all act that way and they're all the same. And yet white people are all definitely individuals. And no matter what one white person does, it doesn't reflect on the rest at all is because that's how the system of white supremacy has been set up. And it's based on a legacy of racism echoing very strongly into the present. So, you know, trying to find the origin of that system in today's society, like the, the, the origin of how people get these ideas in their head, is like you're a scuba diver in that ocean of white supremacy I talked about, and, you, and then you're having trouble seeing the water. You know, you're scuba diving, you're like, well, I see a fish, I see some seaweed, I see some coral, there's a shark over there, but where's all the water? I, I don't see the water. And the thing is, once you learn how to see it, you realize that it's all around you and it's been all around you for your entire life. And through that never-ending series of micro-influences, it has been one of the major guiding forces teaching you how to think about the world and all of the people in it. So who says that acting smart is acting white, but 
acting like a gangster is acting black? Well, the thing that says that is an infinitely complex series of micro-influences experienced by every person in our culture. <laughs> that's the system by which people get that bullshit in their heads. And that's why it's important to get the people in the privileged groups, the, the, the dominant groups who are not being you know oppressed by these systems but are, are benefiting from these systems. It's why it's important to get those people to recognize what's happening so that they can actively work against the lifetime of micro-influences that they've been subjected to, because that is the only way to get ourselves out of this mind trap that we all find ourselves in simply by the nature of growing up where we grew up. If you want to chime in on that, the number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode all of that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog so coming to you from inside the beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every tuesday and friday thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com and it's a cry and shame how we get so trained Stories and one